Well, good morning. Welcome once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. What a great day to be here to worship the Lord this morning. Let's go before Him in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. I thank You for an opportunity that we have now to look to Your Word. And God, I pray that You'd be with us. That You'd work mightily and miraculously in this time. God, that You would open Your Word to us and that we would open our hearts to receive it. God, that we would not just be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. God, I pray that You'd work mightily in and through me, not because of me, but in spite of me, not for my glory, but for Yours, and not for my sake alone, but for the sake of all of us as saints here at Harmony Bible Church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of Zechariah, and today we come to Zechariah 10. We are almost there, folks. Almost there. We're working our way through the book of Zechariah. And if you remember, Zechariah is written the same time as the prophet Haggai. It's written to the Jews who have returned to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city, rebuilding the, the temple, and they're reconstructing the city as it, trying to as it once stood. And they're discouraged, and they see the troubles and the trials of life, and they see that, that they now, after having returned from captivity, there's a small portion of people that, are, that have returned. There's only about 40,000 or so that have returned and that they don't have the resources they once had, and the temple doesn't look like it's going to be as glorious as it once was, and God reminds them of His promises. He says, I have not abandoned you, and I am going to build my kingdom, and this temple that you're building is a foreshadow of something greater, something bigger that I'm doing in your midst. And He reminds them again and again of His promises, and encourages them that He is working out His plan. And as we come to Zechariah 10, we see this connection with Zechariah 9. We'll kind of look at that in a few minutes, but we see this connection with Zechariah 9, and God is again reminding His people of His promises and the ways in which He's going to bless them. So with that in mind, let's look at Zechariah 10, uh, verses 1-12. through If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain. The Lord who makes the storm clouds, and He will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats." For the Lord of hosts has visited His flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like His majestic horse in battle. From them will come the cornerstone. From them the tent peg. From them the bow of battle. From them every ruler, all of them together. They will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. And they will fight, for the Lord will be with them. And the riders on horses will be put to shame. I will strengthen the house of Judah. And I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them back, because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as, it is, as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together, for I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. 
When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. And they with their children will live and come back. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And they will pass through the sea of distress. And He will strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up. And the pride of Assyria will be brought down. And the scepter of Egypt will depart. And I will strengthen them in the Lord. And in His name they will walk, declares the Lord. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that we saw the three main we saw three main points in Zechariah chapter 9. Number 1 that the Lord remembers his people, number 2 that the Lord sets his people free, and number 3 that the Lord gives his people reason to rejoice. So he he remembers his people, he remembers his promises, he sets them free and he gives them a reason to rejoice. And as a matter of fact, much of the book of Zechariah is built around these very same themes. So today, as we turn to Zechariah 10, I hope that you will see that it's very much connected to chapter 9, but also connected to the book as a whole, and the idea that God is faithful to His promises. And that ultimately, God, in His sovereignty, is working all things together for the good of His people and the glory of His name. I don't know about you, but there are times in life when I need to hear this especially. There are many times, most of, most of life, I need to hear this message. I need to be reminded of God's promises. But then there are times when we're struggling. Times when life just seems to, to beat you down and life is hard. And you just wonder, where is God in all of this? And we need to remember His promises. We need to remember that He has given us reason to rejoice. And that He is working all things together for our good and for His glory. And ultimately, one of my favorite verses, we think of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, we talk about God working all things together for good, and we claim that promise, but we forget that that also in that promise is to conform us to the image of His Son. That ultimately, good in our lives is to make us more like Jesus. And we see that in this text, God is making His people more godly. So today's message is divided into three parts. And uh, three sections, if you will. Verses 1 through 3, the problem. Verses 5 through 12, the promise. And then verse 4, the provision. So that, again, just like last week, there's kind of a climax in verse 4. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, the problem. Verses 5 through 12, the promise. And then come back to look at verse 4, the provision. So without further delay, let's start with the first point in our sermon outline. Number one, the problem. Number one, the problem. Look at verse 1 with me. There, there we read. Ask, the, ask rain from the Lord at the time of spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and He will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. He says, ask the Lord for rain. God provides rain, so ask Him, and He will provide rain for vegetation. And Zechariah's point extends far beyond that of merely asking for material blessings or asking for just rain. The point is that God wants to bless His people. But also, it's a call to repentance. A call to be in right relationship 
with Him. This verse given to those who are returning to the promised land, who have returned and are rebuilding the temple, those who had been taken captive because of their disobedience, this verse should have brought to mind Deuteronomy 11, in which the people when they first came into the land were encouraged in a very much the same way. In Deuteronomy 11, God said to His people as they were about to enter the land, He said, Deuteronomy 11, starting at verse 13, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to My commands which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and your soul, that He will give the rain for your land in its season. If you obey the Lord, if you follow Me, then I will give you this rain. Goes on and says, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But then goes on and says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he goes on and he says in verse 26 of Deuteronomy 11, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. But instead, turn aside from the way in which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. You see, God warned the people, yet the people chose curse. Instead of blessing. Instead of submitting to the Lord, they rebelled against Him again and again and again. And instead of showers of blessing, He disciplined them. Which, by the way, any good father would do. He disciplined them and brought them to Babylon. Brought them into captivity because He loved them. And now they've been returned. And He says, ask the Lord. Ask rain from the Lord. Reminding them of seeking the Lord and His blessings but also reminding them that they need to be obedient to Him. This connection between Zechariah 10 and Deuteronomy 11 can be even more clearly seen when we continue on to the second verse in Zechariah 10. It's there that we read this, for the teraphim, that's the household idols, the little little idols that they would build, and if you read a Scripture, you read Jeremiah 10, I believe it is, and, and Isaiah 44, you read these texts of these guys that they're working with their hands. They're building things out of wood. They're, they're lighting a fire to bake bread with the wood. And then they, they say, oh, hey, look, I can make something cool with this. So they make an idol. They make something in the shape of a man. And then they fasten it down so it won't so it'll stand up. It literally can't stand up on its own. And then they layer it with gold. And then they bow down and worship it and say, oh, my God. They make idols to worship. This is idolatry, folks. And we see this in the Old Testament where people build things, they build little statues with their own hands and then worship that thing as though it made them. They didn't make it. God is speaking against idolatry here. He says, for the teraphim, these household idols, they speak iniquity. And the diviners, they see lying visions. And they tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. You see, the people had a history of consulting the teraphim, these household idols, and the diviners, which are basically the ancient equivalent of fortune tellers. They had this tendency of seeking wisdom from them. Seeking them to tell their future. And this practice was clearly forbidden by God. And idolatry is not something that we just think about in the Old Testament. It's something that existed then and doesn't exist 
now. It's elevating anything over and above God. That is idolatry. We see idolatry in the Ten Commandments. We see idolatry not just in in the first commandment or even the second commandment, but in all of the commandments where we elevate something over and above God. They elevated this statue thinking that it could tell them their future. They, They spoke to these diviners, these ancient fortune tellers, asking them what their future would be. We see this practice forbidden in Deuteronomy 18. There it says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you. So God warned them of this. He said, when you enter the land, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And in Jeremiah 23, he said, Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams. So why is God so opposed to these things? Well, our text tells us it's because they speak iniquity, they see lying visions, they tell false dreams, and they comfort in vain. I love the way the New Living Translation says this. It says, it says these idols and diviners, that they, they give false advice. They predict only lies, they pronounce falsehoods, and they give no comfort. So God is saying, why would you seek after these things? By the way, God is no more impressed by these things today than he was 2,500 years ago. You know, I see uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, I see them posting things like their horoscope on Facebook. And I think we should be horrified at such things. That when we seek diviners to tell us the future, or when we go to those who just merely give us good news, comfort, vain comfort, comfort that isn't comfort at all, that isn't rooted in the truth of God's Word, that tell us the future apart from what God's Word says about our future, there's a problem. You know, at best, these fortune tellers and and those who write these horoscopes, at best, they're frauds. And at worst, they're under demonic influence. It's not something that believers should play with, folks. It's interesting to note that in this text, God is warning the people, the people whom He has brought back into the land, He's warning them against practicing these things or placing their trust in anything or anyone other than Him. He's warning them against idolatry, which is the very thing that led them into captivity in the first place. You know, after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, one would think that this need not be a concern any longer. That the people would have got it. You're taken from your home. You're carried to a foreign land. You're there for 70 years. Right? No more idolatry for me is what I think I would be saying. And yet, that's not the case. Why? Because they were dull of hearing. And you know what? I'm dull of hearing too at times. Far too often we're like the fool in Proverbs 26.11 who repeats his folly and is like a, a dog that returns to his vomit. The point that Zechariah is making here is that people, the people needed to recognize their dependence on God And they needed to look to Him to provide for their needs. They needed to trust in His promises. They didn't need to look to the teraphim or the diviners to know their futures. For God had already told them what would happen. So again, we have this 
this picture of God saying, remember my promises to you. Don't look to them. I've told you how this will play out. Remember Deuteronomy 11. He said, if you listen, He will give you the rain. Beware that you don't turn away to serve other gods. Because if you do, there will not be rain. You see, God had already told them what would happen. Their issue was not a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of faith. Instead of believing the Lord, they chose to believe what was more palatable. They chose to listen to the words of comfort from idols and diviners. However, God said they comfort in vain. In other words, their comfort proves to be no comfort at all. Then as we turn to verse 3, we see that while the people are responsible for their own lack of faith, God also gives a warning to those who lead others astray. He gives a special warning to those who lead others in this way. In verse 3, we read this, My anger is kindled against the shepherds. The shepherds, by the way, refers to all leaders. We think of shepherds in a New Testament context where we think of pastors or we think of Spiritual leaders, this could have also replied to government officials and leaders of all sorts. He says, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, those who lead. And I will punish the male goats. Not a, not a uh, pleasurable term. Not a term that's looked upon as, as um, being uh, as something, that, that it's something that's insulting as them. He says, I will punish the male goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited His flock, the house of Judah. And I will make them like his majestic horse in battle. In other words, I will completely change them. I'm going to go to these leaders. My anger is kindled against them. I'm going to punish them. And I will make Judah, I will completely change them. I'm going to make them like a majestic horse in battle. See, here we have a contrast between the bad shepherds, those who essentially leave the people wandering like sheep, Because they're not leading in accordance with truth. And the Lord Himself, the One who visits, who cares for His flock, and transforms them from wandering sheep to instruments for His glory. He says, no longer will you be like wandering sheep. Instead, you're going to be like like a majestic war horse. You're going to be used for My glory and to accomplish My purposes. So having seen the problem, number one, the problem, That the people needed to turn away from trusting anyone or anything other than God. That they needed to turn to God in faith. Having seen that problem, now let's consider the second point in our sermon outline as we jump ahead to verses 5-12. through Let's consider God's promise to them as they turn to Him in faith. Number two, the promise. Having seen the problem, let's consider number two, the promise. Starting at verse 5, we read this. They, this is the people will be as mighty men treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. And they will fight, for the Lord will be with them. In other words, I'm going to give them victory. They're going to be mighty men. They're not going to be like sheep wandering around without a shepherd. They're going to be mighty and I'm going to give them victory. And he says, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. Even those enemies that have horses will be put to shame. Nothing can thwart my plans. I will Give them victory, is what he says in verse 5. And then verses 6-12, through we see this remarkable pattern of God promising to bless His people, which is followed by the outcome. So He says, I'm going to bless them, and then He says the outcome of that blessing, or the result of that blessing. This can be seen again and again in this text, as God repeatedly says, I will, 
and then follows up each of these promises with the result of, and they will. So he says, I will and they will. I will and they will. Look at verses 6 and 7. I will strengthen the house of Judah. And I will save the house of Jerusalem. This is an allusion to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that they're going to be united. All of the Jews, I'm going to strengthen them, I'm going to save them, and I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Ephraim will... Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. He says, I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to save them. I'm going to bring them back. And they will rejoice. Why will they rejoice? Because they have the stability of being brought back into the land. And they have the protection and stability that only the Lord can provide. There will once again be children in the land. And this, this will be passed on to generation after generation. Their children will see it and be glad, and their heart will rejoice. This certainly has its fulfillment after Zechariah's time, when we see that there was a time of peace in Israel. The people came back to the land, the temple was rebuilt, and there's a time of peace. But it points forward to something far greater than just that. It points forward to the church age. It points forward to now when we know that God has strengthened us. He saved us. He's brought us back into right relationship with Him. And we can rejoice in that. That our hearts naturally cry out and rejoice in the Lord because He's given us the stability in Him. Now look at verses 8 and 9. He says, I will whistle for them to gather them together. For I have redeemed them. I will whistle for them. For I have redeemed them. I will gather them together. For I have redeemed them. And they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them, and the word here literally is sow them. It's not scattering as in punishing them. But when I scatter them like scattering seed, when I sow them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries. And they with their children will live and come back. And I will give them life and they will turn to me. He says, they will display my glory. I will whistle for them. I'll call them to myself. And there will be numerous peoples. There will be more than before. And I'll remember them and they will remember me as they're scattered to sow in foreign countries. Again, this has some fulfillment in Zechariah's day. But it has fulfillment here for the church. That God is calling a people to Himself and sending them out to the ends of the earth to display his glory. And then verses 10 and 11. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. By the way, Assyria didn't exist, so it's, this is clearly not a reference to bringing them back from the land of Syria, from the physical land of Syria. Instead, Assyria and Egypt are meant as pictures of bondage and slavery. Assyria didn't exist in the time of Zechariah's day. It had been long defeated. He says, I will bring them back from Egypt and Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. I'm going to expand their kingdom as far as Gilead and Lebanon. I'm going to grow and greatly enlarge the kingdom. And they will pass through the sea of distress. They will persevere in times of trouble. And He'll strike the waves of the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up. And the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will be brought down. 
He says, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to free them from bondage. I'm going to enlarge their kingdom. And they will persevere in times of trouble. Again, a picture of the church. He's going to rescue us from bondage. He's going to greatly enlarge the kingdom and we will persevere in the times of trouble. And then, verse 12, he says, And I will strengthen them in the Lord. I will be their strength. And in His name, they will walk. God says, God says that we, that those who are strengthened will be His, rep, will be his representatives. That they will be united as His representatives here on earth. And He will walk closely with us. You see, these promises point to an immediate fulfillment in Zechariah's day, a fulfillment in our day in the church, and then an also later fulfillment as God has not forgotten His people Israel. And He will indeed orchestrate all these things when He returns to earth. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises. So to Zechariah, he could look forward, but he couldn't see how these promises were going to be fulfilled Clearly, he could see that they would be fulfilled. The point, though, was for him to claim these promises and for the people to claim these promises and remember that God had not forgotten them. Really, the same is true for us today. We don't know exactly how all these things are going to work out. We would delude ourselves if we were to say we understand all of, that we have an eschatological understanding, an end times understanding that is, that is soundproof. Instead, we say, no, we believe the promises of God. We know that God is faithful and that He will rescue us, that He has a plan for us. And He's going to use all things for our good and for His glory. So these are wonderful promises. But how exactly is God going to bring them about? That's the question. How is God going to call these wandering sheep back into right relationship with Him? And that brings us to the third point. The third and final point in our sermon outline, number three, the provision. Number three, the provision. This is really the climax of the text. Look at verse four with me. This verse, by the way, sets the bad shepherds of verse three, the bad shepherds right before it, against the good shepherd and indicates that God will provide a new kind of leadership for His people. However, as we read this description that's set forth, again, it becomes clear that any earthly leaders that followed Zechariah's time were only meant to foreshadow the perfect leader who was to come, and that is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. So verse 4, from them will come the cornerstone, from them the tent peg, from them the bow of battle, and from them every ruler, all of them together. You see, this passage points to a new kind of leadership. And there were men, and there were times of peace, that partially fulfilled this. That brought about these things shortly after Zechariah's day, but nobody who ultimately fulfills them like the Lord Jesus Christ. And He gives these things to His church, but He's also coming back so that He will establish His kingdom on earth so that these things will be finally and ultimately realized in His reign and rule here on earth. The first thing that we see that the Messiah, Jesus, provides is stability. He says, from them, from Judah, will come the cornerstone. We're all familiar with the analogy of the picture of a cornerstone. That it's the first stone, it's, it's laid on a foundation wall where two walls meet. And it sets the direction for the walls. It provides stability and it's set to a true direction so that, so that it provides a proper structure 
for the building that is being built on it. We see again and again through Scripture Jesus being referred to as the cornerstone. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 28.16, which says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Points to that passage, that cornerstone, as none other than Jesus. And Ephesians 2, verses 19-22 through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, so speaking to the church, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So God provides stability through the coming of the Messiah, through His Son Jesus. And the second thing that the Messiah provides is strength. The Lord says, from Judah will come the tent peg. And this tent peg refers to a, ground, to a stake being driven in the ground to secure a tent. or the, uh, Either that or the, the stake that's driven in the center pole of a tent in which the people's valuables would be hung. And we don't know both, both times in both contexts this tent peg is used. But the point is this. The point is that it's a, it's a sign of strength. Just as the cornerstone is a sign of stability so also the tent peg is a sign of strength that is meant to anchor and hold. Isaiah 22, verse 22-24, through we actually see a close reference to this text. Speaking of Eliakim, a leader of God's people, he says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. I'll set the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg. It's the same word. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house. Offspring and issue. All the least of the vessels. From the bowls to all the jars. In other words, God's glory is going to rest on Eliakim. I'm going to drive him in a firm place. And he is going to be... He's going to hold the keys to the kingdom, but he's not going to hold forever. Isaiah goes on and says, but he will be cut down. He's just a representation of one who is to come. One who will never fall. One who will be firmly driven and will stay in place forever. One who is a descendant of David, and that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only does the Messiah provide stability and strength, but thirdly, the third thing that the Messiah provides is safety. The Lord says, from Judah will come the bow of battle. In other words, He will give victory over His enemies. And He will bring about the end of all oppression. There's no clearer passage than Revelation 19 for this, folks. When Jesus comes back, He gives us victory now. And victory is ours and it is real in the church. But we'll see that victory ultimately and finally realized when He returns. And we read Revelation 19 which says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath, fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has written, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That Jesus ultimately gives us victory. He gives us safety through Him. Victory over our enemies where there's no longer any oppression. The fourth thing that the Messiah provides is solidarity. It's actually unity. I wanted to say unity here, but it had to begin with an S because all the other ones began with S. So I got on thesaurus.com and I searched up other words for unity, right? And I found solidarity. I like unity better. It's just easier. But So the fourth thing that the Messiah provides is solidarity. The Lord says, from Judah will come every ruler together. This is a kind of a difficult um, uh, part of the verse to translate. It's hard to understand exactly what he's saying. But here's what I think he's saying. When he says every ruler together, I think what he's talking about is unity. That in the Messiah comes this unity that we are knit together with Him and also with each other. We see this in Colossians 3.15 where Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. In Ephesians 4 where he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace for there's one body and one Spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, Paul calls us again and again to be intent on one purpose because we are unified in Him. So in this provision, this provision of the Messiah, we see stability and strength and safety, and unity. And that's what God gives us through the Messiah. So by way of review, we see the problem. There's a lack of faith. Not trusting in Him. Turning to idols. And this problem that was real for the people of Zechariah's day is very real for us as well. Not trusting in God. Not believing in His promises. I've said many times, and I think I said it last week, that it's very easy to trust in God's promises when you're here on Sunday morning and you're singing about the promises of God and Scripture's open in front of us. And then when the trials of life come on Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, it's hard to remember the promises of God. He says, don't look to idols. Don't look to the things of the world. Don't trust in man-made ideas. I have spoken the truth about what the future holds. Submit to Me. Turn to Me. Seek Me. Seek Me. I am the Lord. Have faith in Me. The problem was a lack of faith. And secondly, there was the promise that God was going to restore His people. That He was going to use them to speak of His glory. That He was going to set them free from bondage. And they were going to walk together with Him. That even in the midst of this trial, when they were living in a land where there were so few of them and their economy stunk, and what they felt like they were doing for the Lord didn't amount to anything, that God said, I have a glorious plan for you. I will indeed use you for your good and my glory. And then the, the provision. We saw that the way he would accomplish that is by bringing a new kind of leader. A leader who would provide stability, strength, safety, and unity. 
So here's the big question. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, how do we, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? Well, number one, we need to recognize the problem. We need to recognize disobedience and a lack of faith that exists, even in us as followers of Jesus. We need to recognize that at times when life is hard, that we often look to sources of truth which are not truth at all. We often look to sources of comfort which are not comfort at all. And we need to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to have faith. We need to remember the promise that God will rescue us. That He's going to build His kingdom. That He will accomplish His purposes. I praise God every day for the promises that He provides in His Word. That He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You turn on the news, you see conflicts within families and struggles that people are going through and you wonder, where, where is all of this heading? And instead of looking to diviners, instead of looking to our horoscope, or instead of seeking security in things that don't provide security... Idols such as money or prestige or our jobs. Instead, our security comes from the Lord. We, we remember His provision. That through the Lord Jesus Christ, He has given us stability. That He has set Him as a cornerstone. By Him, we must measure all things. We must build our foundation on the truth of the Gospel. Our lives must be built on that. And in that, we can have strength. That He has given us strength to endure come what may. And that in that, we also have safety. That He's provided safety for us. Victory over sin. Victory over the One who is the enemy of your soul. And then lastly, we have unity in Him. That we are united with Him and united with each other. So we should live in that way. We, re- we recognize the problem. We remember the promise. And then we run to His provision of the Gospel day by day, as we seek to honor Him. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace, Your mercy, and Your love. God, I pray that You'd be with us now, that You'd encourage us. God, that You'd help us to run to the truth of the Gospel. God, that You'd help us to recognize that You hold the future, our future, in Your hands. God, that You do not abandon Your people. You do not abandon Your promises. And God, that you are working all things together for good, for our good and for your glory. And God, that you will build your church, that you will carry through to completion the work that you began in us. Help us to remember that and to trust in the provision of your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.